BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's good, y'all? This is Breeze Bruin from the Mighty Juggernauts. And make sure you subscribe and download the podcast. Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Kell. Hip-hop journalism on the highest level. Yeah, what's up? It's your boy, Joel Ortiz. And I want everybody to make sure that they subscribe and download the podcast, Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Einenko. Yo, Tim, I hope all is well. You my guy. I know these interviews are not interviews. They're actually conversations, and I appreciate them all. Yeah. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ice-T. I want you to do something for me. Make sure you download and subscribe Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews. With Tim I and Cal, it is old fucking official. All right, stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library rap, the hip hop interviews with Tim I and Cal. It's cold. Things just ain't the same for Asians. They slicing our faces with knives and razors. They stabbing whole families, including the babies. We taunted with racist slurs on a daily basis. Immigration agents put us in cages. Cops throw us on the pavement, face down in bracelets. COVID ain't the most contagious disease. Racism's number one in the hatred it brings. Six has had and has continues to have a good, incredible career. When I first heard him in the late 90s, he debuted before then. Up until now, you can tell he's having fun with his music, but as someone who truly continues to care about his craft and he continues to develop it. He recently teamed up with DJ Cutso on the record Anti, a track raising awareness of the increase in violence against the AAPI community. Lyrics born, welcome to Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Anikel. Uh Thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you, man. My pleasure. Uh, so, I, of course, I want to talk about the new uh, the new single, which I think is, is powerful and also an incredible track as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But before we get into that, I want to, if you could take us back to 1992, I know this is a, a long time ago, uh, yeah. with uh, Quantum uh, Projects. Um, I mean, I definitely heard you, that was kind of like the first, obviously the first experience I've had listening to you. What was the reason, you know, what was the reason behind establishing this hip hop collective and what did you all want to kind of get out of it and what, what purpose, what purpose did it have then and what purpose does it have now? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I came from Berkeley, California. I was born in Japan, but eventually we we moved to Berkeley, California around the time that I was five. You know, from the moment I heard hip hop, I was just in love. You know, it just, I know you hear people say it was a life changing experience, but I mean, clearly in my case, it it, it cleared the path for me for, for what I was going to do with my life, you know, so... Um, so in that, in that regard, yeah, I mean, um, I was absolutely smitten at that moment and, um, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. The minute I heard Sugar Hill Gang in the first grade, Mm. you know, or the second grade or whatever that was, uh, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. I knew I, you know, I, I just clicked with the culture. I clicked with the music. You know, it was just the mystique of it, the allure, 
the vibe, just everything about hip hop. I, I wanted more, you know, and I just wanted to be a part of it. And I wanted to be a participant, you know. So I continued to do so, you know, all throughout my childhood and adolescence. And then in high school, when I started Berkeley High, I was rapping. And as a freshman, I was, you know, I was cutting demos uh, in the basement of a guy. His name is John Watson. His, his producer name was The Onion Lady <laughs> and uh, or Onion. It, it later got shortened to Onion and it was called The Onion Lab was the name of his studio. And, you know, he was one of the very, very few early guys in the Bay Area, the East Bay Area that had an actual studio because his his parents lived in an actual house and they, and they had a basement and he had inqui- equipment and they didn't mind us all hanging out down there and making noise. And eventually almost every East Bay local rapper would make their way through the onion lab from, you know, souls of mischief to Dell, the funky homo sapien to too short to, you know, Kingpin Roski and Mac Mill. That was kind of my crew. They were my mentors mm. And then, you know, I started to not do so well, man, at Berkeley High. And so, you know, I left. I left Berkeley High and bounced around to a couple high schools. And um, eventually, you know, by the grace of God, I I got accepted to college at UC Davis up here in Northern California. Where are you located? Uh, New York City. Okay. So, you know, I got into college at UC Davis. and, And my freshman year in the dorms, I met... Chief XL and from from Black Alicious, but at the time Black Alicious was called Atomic Legion. You know, they were not a they didn't have they weren't called Black Alicious yet. And he was in a group with Gab and they had been a, together as a group since they were in high school, wow. which is pretty wild. Yeah, Black Alicious has been together since high school. It's pretty amazing. So I met I met Chief XL and I was like, you know what? I've been listening to the college radio station KDVS and there's this guy on there named Jeff Chang, DJ Zen. He's got a hip hop show and it's a real hip hop show. He's playing real shit. You know, when I say real shit, I mean it's like, you know, he's definitely ahead. He's playing authentic 100% underground hip hop, you know, that's which is what we love. Right. You know, primarily primarily New York hip hop. Um and um you know, Jeff Chang obviously went on to become this award-winning storied author, and he's like, you know, a, 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 an incredible activist, and he's a talking head now on so many documentaries, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but at the time, he was just a college radio DJ and a lobbyist at the Capitol of Sacramento. So, you know, what was happening was I kept calling into his show, you know, in this little farm town in the middle of Northern California where we felt very isolated culturally, you know? Mm -hmm. And so this was like a beacon of light in the middle of the desert, this, this radio station and this radio show. So, you know, I kept winning this contest called name that sample. So uh, Jeff would play these, the, the hip hop song, the, 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 the rap song, and then it would be like name that sample. So it would be, you know, they play main source, you know, like uh, um, just hanging out. And he'd say, what's the sample? And I'd call up and I'd be like, oh, that's Gwen McRae or that's Tenor Saw, ring the alarm. You know what I mean? So I kept, I kept winning. I Basically, I kept winning every week. I was the only guy calling in, I think, to be honest. <laughs> and so he said, well, why don't you come down, bring some records, you know, because he realized that, 
that what he was doing was rare. And, and, and I think he realized that having this guy calling every week who was obviously a maniac aficionado was also rare. So he said, well, why don't you come down and, you know, come hang out with me, bring some records, you know, we'll vibe or whatever. So I told Chief XL from Black Alicious, who I had classes with, I was like, you know, let's go down to his radio show. We got invited. So he was like, all right, cool. So me and X went down to KDVS uh, that night. You know, he had like a midnight to three radio show. And he comes out and we go in and then there's like these two white guys in the corner of the room. Right. And uh, one of them had like this Sherpa Marlboro man jacket, you know, and this really beat up like corduroy, I don't know, hat that said either skull or Copenhagen or something like that. I don't know, man, you know, and I thought they were just two frat guys, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that were just hanging out in the radio station turns out it was eighth wonder um who who went on to do the original artwork for all the soul side stuff and the other guy was dj shadow wow. and, and so um and so we met so we all met and and um you know we vibed and you know conversations started happening and we just i x and i started coming back every week you know it was the one thing that we were really excited about and at that time, KDVS had an probably the best record library I've ever seen, you know, of any college radio station anywhere in America, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, eventually after months of conversations, you know, it, it was um, obvious that we were all working on demos separately. And Jeff, because he was a little bit old, I mean, he was a little bit older than us at the time. And when I say older, I mean... I was 17 and he was 20, you know, he was like, well, why don't we, you know, we're not really having any luck getting signed to major labels. Why don't we pool our money together and make our own records, you know, and or our own, I don't think it was records plural. I think is why don't we put our money together and make our own record, you know? And so, and so we did, you know, we, we, you know, I think, X doing some money from his student loans. I think I got a $200 loan from my stepfather, you know. I think Jeff might, might have had some grant money. Then Shadow kicked in some money, you know what I mean? And we we made that first record in 1990. We recorded it in 1991, I think we recorded it. Jeff was like, hey, I know this guy in San Francisco. He's got a studio. He'll let us, he'll give us some studio time if we want to do it there. He'll do us a favor, blah, blah, blah. His name's Dan the Automator. Have you ever heard of him? Wow. <laughs> right? So we go down so we record our first record at Dan's studio. Dan was older than us. Dan was probably in his when I say older, I mean I was seventeen, Dan was twenty four, you know, right. something like that. You know what I mean? And um, you know, he was living with his parents at the time and he had a little studio built in the basement of his parents' house, you know. And um, so we recorded it there, and that was the first record. On one side, it was DJ Shadow Entropy, and on the other side, it was Asia Born Send Them. And we called it Soul Sides, S-O-L-E, because we each had the soul side of the record. Mm. You know what I mean? So. And, and then that was that was really the birth of Soul Sides, which later became Quantum, but um, that's how it started. Oh, 
when I mean, so you you record this you know this record right, and then and then, and then what what's for you guys? What what would what was the game plan right after that? I mean, were you trying to borrow more money to record more records, or was it you know was it pitching the major labels or even pitching the local radio stations? Well, we didn't have a game plan, you know. I, I mean, we sort of had a game plan. I mean, I, I don't know that it was really clear, you know. We were just kids, you know. We had no idea what we were doing, you know. I, I think I thought that we were going to put this record out and get rich, you know. And, uh, you know, this basically a, a, a it was basically a, a 12-inch single or an EP, you know. And so we had these records all over the, uh, the, the, the country and later on the world just on consignment. We didn't even have a like a distribution, a proper distribution deal or anything like that. It was all sort of like hand to hand, you know. And I think what ended up happening was Shadow ended up getting signed to Moax, which was a small independent British label. And Moax, you know, was putting out a lot of records that were really, really popular at the time, you know, in sort of the trip hop world, mm -hmm. you know. And so Moax eventually signed a larger deal with a major label. And thus, I think the way it happened was, and thus started putting out Shadows records on a major level. You know what I mean? And then just as time went on, though, you know, we just, Soul Sides just kept putting out more and more independent records, you know, because there were so many of us. There was, there was, it was me as Asia Born, there was Black Alicious. There was, you know, uh, Latif and, and me and Latif together as Latirix. And so we just kept putting out these albums, you know, like every dollar we made went back into the business and we just kept reinvesting and reinvesting and just kept putting out these albums. And that's how it happened. And I think, yes, I think we all did want to get signed to major labels because that was the thing back then, mm -hmm. you know, it was I mean, being an independent hip hop label back then in the early, mid and late 90s was very, very rare and unheard of. It wasn't done. I mean, the only thing I can think of, it was like, you know, it was like, you know, if Elon Musk says, you know what, I'm going to build a car. <laughs> You, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like it doesn't it doesn't happen. You know, there's well, why would you, that's impossible? There's all these car major car companies. How could you even think to, that that would be a success? You right. know what I'm saying? Like that that's sort of how it felt. So that was kind of like our that was the climate at that time. Was like there's no way that an independent record label will survive. You know, there's no way that it's even possible. You know, but we did it. You know, we did it. I, I, I mean, I remember in like 19, so 1999, 19, 19, I started a hip hop radio show in my college, like underground hip hop, right? Um, yeah. And I remember y y your label, <laughs> it was, I got a lot of stuff from you guys and, you know, definitely played a lot of, uh, a lot of your music. So um, awesome. I was definitely really appreciate it. And that, that's one thing that, and I, I want to ask you, uh, I interviewed Be Real, like, um, a few months back and he talked about his voice, right. And how his, yeah. you know, it was something that he had to figure out as an MC. Um, right. and I remember hearing you for the first time on my, you know, playing you on my college radio show and, and, and maybe cause I'm an East coast guy, but your voice like really stood out to me at all times. Mm. Um, and I, I'm curious, did you ever, what, did you have to go through stages of trying to find your voice in, you know, in this music and in terms of like, did you have to change your flow up a little bit or did you, you know, can you talk about your progression of your voice? 
Yeah, I mean, you, you know, to be honest, you know, my voice did not really change until I was 23 mm. or 24. You know, like if you listen to those old lyrics born or Asia born, I mean, my voice is really high right. and raspy. You know, my, my voice really did not change. So, you know, right around 22 or 23 and it got a lot deeper, you know. And um, it wasn't until probably like Balcony Beach, which is like 96 or 97, that that my voice actually started to sound different, you know. And um, I, I, when it did, I, I really embraced it. You know, I really embraced it. And I think, you know, yeah, that's that's something that I think every artist, every no matter what genre or medium has to do is find their voice. Just, you know, for for rappers or vocalists, you know, it's 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 figurative and it's literal. You, you really have to find your voice, you know, and that never stops. You know, you will continue throughout your career, or at least I continue throughout my career to find new voices, mm-hmm. you know, or find, find new ways to c- express new ideas and new ways and new perspectives and new ways to approach things vocally. You know, that never ends for me, you know. You know, you, you read, you know, prepping for this interview and, you know, listening to past interviews did and, you know, reading up on you, uh, you could tell that you you seem to be someone who absorbs a lot of, from you know, from other artists, you know, in terms of like you're always constantly trying to learn. Um, and so I have to ask you, I mean, I, I interviewed a, a DJ Shadow a, a couple of years ago, but what was kind of one of the things that have stood out to you as him as a producer that you kind of continue to use to this day? You know, I think it's funny. I think with, with all the producers that I've worked with, um, you, you know, you take something away, you know, he talks a lot, you know, which is funny. It's like, he's not really a, a, a very, visible guy as far as the the um the 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 media is concerned you know but when you work with him he talks a lot you, you know like he really thinks out loud a lot and I'm that's not really my process you know like I'm more of like let's just get in let's feel it let's do it you know what I mean but he likes to discuss you know things a lot and it's just a very different approach and I think you know I I would say that I I don't I don't know now in retrospect if I consider him a producer in that sense you know I think yes he has produced music with other artists on it but I I don't consider him a producer in the sense that like you're going to hire him to to do your whole album for you okay you know what I mean so it's a little different working with him. It's like it's like a co-product. It's like working with another artist. Mm. Do, do, do you know what I mean? It's just different. It's not like it's it's just it's a different experience, you know. But what what I do like about him and what I do like about all the guys in Quantum were that we were so and are so committed to quality. Mm. You know, like that's that's a really really huge ethos part of the ethos i think that i carry with me to this day like it's really i I don't know that i've ever been able to half-ass something Mm. you know what i mean 
So, and I think that was just, I think that was one of the things that really was that was that really bound us together was this sort of this really, really almost too stringent commitment to quality, you know, almost to where, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Right. You, you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, I've actually loosened up over the years, I feel like, to to my benefit, you know, but I've still maintained that 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 ethos, I believe. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Chris Hahn, the Aggressive Progressive. Check out a new episode of the Aggressive Progressive podcast every Tuesday. You know, the election is heating up. Just as the year is winding down, stick with me. I'll tell you the truth as I see it. Download the Aggressive Progressive on Pandora or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, you, you, you know, you spoke in past interviews how growing up, uh, especially in the you know in the states, there was uh, zero images of Asian Americans in print and TV, and movies, pop culture. And you, you talked about how you gravitated towards uh, hip hop culture. So, what what was it about hip hop that that spoke to you as as you know, and I guess an Asian American uh, growing up at this time? I mean, what was it versus other other music that was out there? Well, I, I think it was that you know when when you're a person of color in America, it, it's pretty obvious early on that you're on the outside. You know, it's I mean, it was clear to me from like three years old that, oh, I'm not the guy here. Mm. You know, what I mean? you know, there's this sort of sense of that you're a visitor, you know, and um, and I've talked to so many people about that feeling. And it's not just Asians. It's I think it's it's most people of color have felt that feeling, you know, um, in their lifetime, you know if not throughout their lifetime, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately. So I think, you know, and, and, and I think that's why hip hop speaks to so many people who, even if you're not a person of color and you still may feel like you're on the outside, you know, the thing that appealed to me so much was that it was so accessible. You know, it was like when, when I grew up listening to the radio, watching TV, like you just said, there was no, I mean, like zero, Z- maybe two or three people. And one was like Bruce Lee, of course, right. and maybe Mr. Miyagi, you know, right. Pat, and that's it. That's it. And I, I don't remember ever, or Mr. Sulu, you know, <laughs> George Tiket. But there was nobody that really, and even to this day, it's very difficult to find accurate images of Asian Americans in pop culture. You know, it's it's really, really hard. Definitely not as hard as it, as it was, thank God. You know what I mean? 
But, um, you know, back then it was like, you know, um, it was it was next to impossible. So when, when, when you hear hip hop for the first time, you're like, oh, wow. So there is this other way to be, you know. So there is this other um, this other lane, this other sort of world that I don't need to take guitar lessons. I don't need to be a rock musician. I don't even need to be an R&B musician. I don't even need to be a musician. Right. Do, you, do you know what I mean? And I think to this day, that's one of the things that's so special about hip hop is how accessible it is. You know, anybody can start rapping. You know, there's no you, you, there's no courses offered on it. You don't have to go to Juilliard to become classically trained. You know what I mean? I, I don't even know if you could go on Craigslist and find somebody to teach you how to rap. I mean, I suppose you could, you know, <laughs> you too. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's 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 one of the few arts that is completely self-taught, you know, to this day. You know, the barrier of entry is super low, you know. So anybody can do it. And I think that's what spoke to me about it. You know, I knew all the words to Rapper's Delight before I even heard the song. Wow. And, and and the reason being is because all the kids on the schoolyard, the, the second graders and the third graders were all singing the song, you know, on the schoolyard. And, and I'm like, what is that? You know, how? and then I just started and I heard them singing it so much. I just joined in, you know, and it was like a barbershop quartet of everybody singing Rapper's Delight. And then, I don't know, maybe a month or two, six months later, whatever it was, I heard, I actually heard the eight minute song, you know, and I was like, oh, that's what this was. Oh, and I just started singing along the first time I heard it. You know, that's how, that's why hip hop is so special. That's why hip hop was so special because I think it was something that was created organically you know, by black people, brown people, people of color. And it just spoke to me, you know, it just spoke to me. And while I didn't see a lot of Asian Americans in the media voicing themselves independently, I did have hip hop doing that for me. You know what I mean? And I think that's why it spoke to me. Was was there any pushback within the hip hop community for? I mean, against against I guess against you. I mean, in terms of being this you know Asian kid trying to rap, uh, you know, like was there more that you you felt or maybe some uh, unbeknownst pressure that you had to prove yourself a little more uh, than an, any other than, than a, you know an African American kid or you know a brown kid. You know, maybe at times, but not really, not amongst my peers. You know, I think people were sometimes surprised to hear that sound coming out of my mouth, you know, but definitely not in the Bay Area so much, because, I mean, at that time in, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, when I was coming of age in the music, I mean, look at who was there. I mean, I can point to Dan the Automator, Q-Bert, you know, Hieroglyphics, E-40, Too Short, Invisible Scratch, Pickle. I mean, you, you know, there were so, it was so diverse. It was not really that unusual for me to look how I looked and to be an artist, a hip hop artist coming from the Bay. You know, we all live like 15, 20 minutes from each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it, it was really not that unusual. It wasn't until I started, make, I became a professional. 
and I started making records and I started touring and I saw some of the things that they were writing about me. And I saw the way that the industry at large, the business started to perceive me. That's when I started to realize, oh, it's not them that's weird. And I'm the one that's normal. It's I'm the one that's different. And they're and they're the ones that are normal as far as the world is concerned. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So it became a challenge when I when I became a professional. That's when it became difficult because I was no longer dealing with my peers. I was dealing with people who maybe had never even seen an Asian American in their entire lives, you know, let alone, you know, interacted with one in that space, you know, or in any space in entertainment. You know, it was it was wild. The shit the shit that I used to see written about me was crazy. It was like, oh, wow, he's pretty good for an Oriental. You know what I mean? Jesus. Wow. Or. Yeah, I mean, because that word was still in the the public lexicon, the American lexicon back then in the early 90s, right. you know. I mean, it was on its way out. But, you know, the Asian guy in the group, we really liked him. You know what I mean? He's different. You know, I didn't even, you know, I read shit like, you know, there were things in the press that were like, you know, I didn't even know Asians could rap. And, I mean, people would say that was such abandoned. It was so normalized for people to be that culturally insensitive you know that um it was really a tough time you know and i had to battle that for a long 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 time and and you know now i my battles are different now but i mean they still exist you know you're obviously you're you have music that i mean you're very open about your your you know your journey and i and i and i want to go to 2015 when you dropped your fourth solo album real people yeah, and uh, the first verse. Uh, what I think is incredible, listening to it again, right, is that the first verse on the title track is you know you're very open again. You talk about your parents and yourself flying over from the states to Japan. You know, from Japan to the states. Uh, yeah. Your parents getting divorced pretty quickly. Uh, their relationship after the divorce, and you know, you kind of you growing up with, as a with a single mom. Um, why in 2015 was did you feel it was time to I guess kind of re reshare yourself with us? You know, I think because these stories need to be told, you know, and for a good 10 year period, I was the only Asian rapper that had a platform, you you know, for for a good 10 year period, I was the only Asian American that had my own company, my own distribution, uh, my own soapbox. And it was like, and there was a certain point where I was like, oh my God, if I don't make a record this year or next year, there will be nobody that looks like me that will put out an album. Do you know what I mean? It's not, thank God, it's not like that anymore. You know what I mean? But that has been my journey. You know, that has been my challenge. And you know what? These are American stories. These are American stories that need to be told. These are American stories that did not exist in the public, not from an not from an Asian American perspective. Do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Sure, there's plenty of songs out there about divorce and relationships ending, and you know, single mothers. But there are these stories are not coming from Asian Americans, and I think that's the important distinction that people need to understand is that. You know, that representation, it really does matter. And 
And these things need to be heard because, you know, when you're when you're 12 percent of the population, but zero percent of the presence or point one percent of the presence on air. Whether it be the radio waves, whether it be, you know. Film, television, you know, it's it's very, very difficult, you know, to. To not participate when you have the means you know what i mean when you see that void when you've lived in that void your entire career you know um and that's where you know people ask me why do you have this drive why do you put out an album every year for the past 25 years you know what i mean like why 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 is it that you do 100 gigs a year why because you know i've oftentimes felt like you know all these things, these moments that other artists take for granted, you know, like it makes me sick when I see artists, you know, keeping their Grammys on their bathroom floor or, right. or drinking beer out of them. Or where, Where's your Grammy? Oh, I don't know. It's somewhere around here. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like I say in Don't Quit Your Daydream on Quite a Life. It's like, you know. I hear these dudes throw tantrums. There ain't enough room for more Grammys in my bathroom. Meanwhile, I'm here album after album waiting for an Asian to win one statue. You know what I mean? And th- these are the things that that you grow up, you know, in this business, you just don't take for granted, you know, because I, I literally had to work a quarter's worth for every nickel that I've ever made, you know, in this game, you know, and um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wouldn't trade it for the world because I knew at some point it was going to change. I knew that I was rounding the bases for the people that would come after me, you know. And the other reason why, you, you know, I, it, everything I do at this point, it's a legacy play. How can I add on? How can I add on to what I've already done in a meaningful way? How can I add on to what the music community and music history has done in a meaningful way? You know, how can, where can I insert myself and my talents and my perspective and my art? Where can I insert myself uh, in a way that will have lasting value? You know, that is how I view my career now. You know, I mean, it's almost like quantum, you know, that whole part of my life, those formative years, that was so important for me. But that was a lifetime ago, it feels like. You know, it literally feels like a lifetime ago to me, you know, like I haven't talked to Shadow in probably five years, oh, wow. you know, like like Latif and I still get on the phone, uh, you know, regularly. And, you know, X, I probably talk to regularly, but, you know, everything has changed, you know, for I'm assuming for them as well, you know, since then. But, you know, it's it's just, it, it's not a moment I ever take for granted, you know, be, this life, this existence, this journey, this career, my challenges have been far different than those of my peers, you know, being in this business far different. You know, I, it, it's like, um, it, I, it, I joke with my wife sometimes. It's like, sometimes I feel like I'm in the fifties, you know, <laughs> <laughs> You know, like this is like this is as far as Asian American. I mean, it's changing very quickly. But for a long time, I felt like it was like 1955 for me. You know what I mean? Like hopping in the station wagon, playing the Chitlin circuit. You know what I mean? It was just um, 
you know, with, with my name in cursive on the side of the door, you know what I mean? It, it was just, uh, my, my, my challenges have been far, far different than those of my peers in this game, you know? Uh, I want to, want to turn to the, to the new single with, uh, uh DJ Katso, uh, anti, um, you know, obviously when the, um, when COVID hit, uh, the then president Trump, obviously used the slur China virus, right? Yeah. Um, what, when you first heard that, you know, do you remember where you were and what was your immediate reaction? I mean, I, I knew we were in for trouble. You, you know, the, the minute I heard that, the minute I heard the China virus, Kung flu, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. You, you know what I mean? Because I knew what it meant. It meant that it, it was going to be open season on Asians. Because when you have somebody in the very top seat, in the very the pinnacle of world leadership, sitting in that seat, Saying things that, let's be clear, I mean, if any coach, news caster, co-worker, teacher, parent said those kinds of things publicly, they'd lose their job. Mm-hmm. And, they might, and they might not get another one. Right. They might not get another one. But... You know, when you're in the top seat and you basically shun that responsibility, the, the responsibility to speak responsibly, you know, and you're essentially using language that's so hurtful uh, and hateful and you're not cognizant or even you don't even care about what the repercussions may be. And you're in the top seat, you're basically sanctioning violence, you're sanctioning um, hatred against this group of people. And you got to understand, by and large, in America, we are not adequately educated about ethnic history in this country. You know, we are not adequately educated about people of color in this country and their experiences, you know, as American history. Do do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, and we are such a large and diverse group. I mean, I I don't, I, I don't expect to hear, I don't even expect most Asians to be able to have conversations about us and, and our differences as Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Filipino, Hmong, Mian, Vietnamese, Laotian, Tibetan, Nepali, Indian. You know, it, it we're a very broad, complex group. And in when you make these statements. Americans, they don't draw any, by and large, the average American doesn't draw any distinction between groups. You know what I mean? And you're basically sanctioning this kind of behavior. And so when I heard that, I knew it was going to be a problem. But, you know, I I think, and and it's true, you know, the numbers 
the 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 hate crimes skyrocketed overnight. They skyrocketed, and as we've seen, people are literally dying. Yeah, people are literally dying, and it's it's scary. But I, you know, I want to be clear. I want to be very very clear about something. This existed before Trump. This is this anti Asian violence. You know, sentiment slurs hatred i mean this is something that i've grown up with i mean it's it's a it's as real to me as breathing air you know what i mean like i've i've grown up experiencing this i mean i was called racial slurs probably every day of my life until i was 20 you know what i mean and then it kind of went down to maybe every other day you know and i still feel it even as a man in his 40s you know i still feel it and obviously, as you can see, what's happening with our elderly, they're feeling it literally and figuratively in their 60s, 70s, 80s. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's it's definitely increased, I think, in some cities a thousand fold, you know, the incidents being reported. So that means if there was one incident last year, there was a thousand this year. You know what I mean? Right. So it's very serious, you know, and, and it's like I say in the song, you know, in the third verse, when I talk about, you, you know, during the COVID period, I mean, era, Asians, I mean, we're going through all the same things all the other Americans are going through. You know, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my house? Am I, am I going to get evicted? You know, what kind of toll is this taking on my marriage and my relationships? You know, what kind of toll is this going to take on my mental health? I mean, we have all the, you know, oh, oh and by the way, there's this thing called Corona. I could pass from that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the actual disease, but now there's this whole other layer for us. Am I going to get killed if I go out today? Is my 80-year-old mother getting on the bus going to get punched in the face? You know what I mean? Are we going to get taunted when we go to Target to fight over toilet paper? You know what I mean? Are we going to get yelled at on the street? Are we going to get assaulted, you know, there's that whole other layer now that we feel in addition to all the other things that every other American or person in the world is feeling as it relates to living in the Corona era. You know what I mean? So it's been extremely difficult for us. You know, it's been extremely difficult. And, and um, you know, I think that's why this song was absolutely necessary. And and frankly, that's why it's gotten the reception it has. That's why you and I are talking today. Right, my my, my uh, wife's good friend, she's a Chinese-American and she has two kids and she's, she says she's really scared. She lives in New York, but she's really scared to go outside uh, at all times. I mean, she has, you know, mace in her pocket and everything, but she's still nervous to, uh, to leave the, the apartment. Yeah, uh, and, and, and I just sit here and I'm like, what a beautiful feeling and an existence it must be to not have to experience that. Right. right. You know, it's just like, I don't even know what that feels like. I don't even know, you know, I don't know what it's like to not feel worried about my child right now going back to school. You know, 
And and if school is back in, do I let little man in or will he get his ass kicked by racist upperclassmen? I don't even know what that feels like to not feel that way, you know, and and I, and it, it makes you it really gives you pause as as a as an Asian American and a person of color. You know, you really stop and you think about, wow. And to take that even further, I don't know what it's like to not live with those feelings in one way or another my entire life mm. come to think of it you, you know what i mean so it's like it's um it, it's really come to a head for us in in our psyche you know and um it's like i said you know in the song it's like you know i know it's been trending but let's be transparent this shit's been happening before the pandemic coming up i heard chink so much it was anthemic you know it's that's just true. That's that's the reality of our existence, you know, in this country, unfortunately. And and, you know, I, I just hope this song will alleviate some of that pain for us, you know, and and raise the awareness for others. You know, uh, lyrics, I want to go back to there's uh, you, you talked about education and, and uh, there's there's a line in the song that really stands out to me and it's. Uh, those in authority blame the minority, yeah. um, and it it started to me because obviously it's it's a strategy that that that's always been happening, right? It's just like find someone to blame, um, find some minority group to blame, and not absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and you know, the big thing is, uh, you know, Martin Luther King was you know organizing sanitation workers and trying to say it's more of a class thing than you know, you know, trying to get races together and show that it's the so essentially the government is the one to blame and not blacks or whites or you know Asians, but. I want to ask you about education and what's not taught about uh, the history of uh, Asian Americans being oppressed in this country. Um, because what's interesting, my so my daughter is half Japanese and my son's you know they're both half Japanese and my my daughter's learning who's from six but she's learning about Juneteenth and she, she talks about and it makes sense. She's she she's she's asked my wife. She goes, so was I before Juneteenth? Was I half black, half white? And what you realize yeah. is that there, what, what's happening is that you realize, okay, there, you're somewhat learning about the history of oppression, but of of a group, but it's it's only about, but it, to my daughter's eyes, there's probably was only black people and white people back then, and not you know Asians or anything. So yes. what? And of course, we have in you know World War II, a Japanese and the propaganda, the political cartoons that you know were just out there, and and the internment camps. Yeah. But what do you remember being taught about? Asian Americans in school and the treatment of Asian Americans in American history? Nothing. You know, nothing. I, I remember, you know, when I was in school, the the American history book, we were, you know, we were reading books back then. The American history book was probably as big as the yellow pages. You know, I think we're both we're old enough to remember those years. That oh, yeah. Year. Yes. <laughs> And I remember the only mention of Asian Americans was a very small pair in the entire book was a very small paragraph on the Chinese that came over to build the railroads. Mm, yep. I think the thing that we need to, to be taught and, and share is that history is a living, breathing entity and it's changing all the time. And I think, you know, that needs to be reflected in the curriculum because I learned nothing. And so that, that where, where does that put us? It's almost like 
you don't you're not taught you're not even shown images that are negative you're not shown any images right you're not reading anything about yourself so it, it in effect what that tells you is that you're just non-existent you don't you, you know subconsciously the way that that's interpreted is you don't exist important enough to even be written about you know you don't you're of no consequence whatsoever you know and uh, again this is what this is something that we live with you know this is something that we live with and imagine going through 22 years including higher education of that you know until you're able to kind of if you're lucky enough to make it to college you know and take an asian american studies class for one year you know or, or you know or you you have the wherewithal and the desire and you feel the impetus to kind of go research it on your own you know and that's why hip-hop was so important for me because i grew up in the boogie down productions public enemy era you know and you know Karis one boogie down productions had a song called you must learn do you remember that do you remember that yeah. song you know oh, yeah. and i was and i was fortunate enough to grow up in the era where we had the native tongues and the jungle brothers and brand newbie and public enemy and and there was this sort of this this black consciousness that that was present in the music afrocentricity was present in the music at that time you know what i mean and what that really stimulated me to do is go out and learn about myself. Oh, yeah, I must learn. I must learn. I must learn about myself. So I took my ass to the fucking library, you know, and I tried to find everything I could on Asian Americans. And there wasn't much, you know, there just wasn't a lot at that time. You know, there was no Google, obviously, and there was no, you know, I'm here with a library card checking out books, you know. Um, but that's not the norm. You know, that's not what normal kids do in the ninth grade. You know what I mean? Um, that's not the norm. But it, it was because the music, I, I was so, the, the culture and the music was so embedded in me. I did everything that it said. You know, I laced my shoes a certain way. I wore my pants a certain way. You know, I got a certain kind of haircut. I ate a certain kind of food. You know what I mean? I, had, I used a certain slang. I carried myself a certain way. I, I chose the friends that I chose. I chose the spouse that I chose. I chose the career that I did because of hip hop. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, that is one such example. You know, I, I really, it, it made me do a deep dive into who I was because clearly I was not being taught in, in the way that that other kids were. You know, and, and again, that's not an Asian American thing. That's a person of color thing. And the thing that's so sad about that also is that we're just depriving ourselves. I don't know if you read this open letter to the music industry that I wrote the other day, but oh no, I got it's on idobi.com, I D O B I. But, um, you know, that we're just depriving ourselves of the truth of who we really are as a culture and as a society when we don't educate ourselves to teach each other or, or make space for these stories and these experiences, you know? And, um, um, it's, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to educate your children about who their heroes are when you yourself don't even know, you know what I mean? It's hard for me. Like, 
you, you know, my wife's Filipino, my son is obviously half Japanese, half Filipino. And it's like, you, you know, I make it a point. I have to, sometimes I have to do research to educate him on, on who Yuri Kochiyama is or who Larry Itliong is or who Malcolm X is, you know, like I have to do because I don't want them to grow up not knowing the beauty of who they are. It's really important for their self self-esteem, you know? Um, you know, because, you know, every time there's an Asian joke made in Family Guy or every time there's an Asian joke made on The Simpsons, there's no Asian voice to counterbalance that. And my son loves those shows. You know what I mean? Right. And so it's like we had to have that discussion the other day. It's like, you know, these are the things that, you know, as a parent of color, you have to be really vigilant about, you know, again, it's just that extra blanket on the bed all the time, you know? And, um, it's like, it's like when I, when I was talking about our experience during COVID and I, you know, we have to, like I said, we have to worry about all the things that all Americans do in this era, but then we also have to worry about this other, we, we also have this other layer or two on the bed, you know, of, you know, the, the potential for violence or death, you know, and that's sort of the, right. our burden as parents of color also sometimes is that we have to provide this other, um, this other stream of knowledge, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, so that we have a, a good sense of who we are in the world. You know, because unfortunately, current modern, quote unquote, modern education doesn't provide that for us. You know, you know the entire song, the lyrics are are are, are not just powerful, yeah. but they're, they're extremely heavy. Uh, and 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 it's, you know, it's that weird feeling as a fan that you want to, of course, enjoy the music. But then it gets very, you know, after if you actually read the lyrics and listen to what you're saying, it gets really depressing. Um, <laughs> And and I think what starts what 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 the depression doesn't the depression starts off right off the bat with you know your opening line yeah. right and I think it's just ain't the same for Asian they slicing our faces with knives and razors stabbing whole families including the babies we're taunted with racist slurs on a daily basis yeah. um, and continue and I I won't try to butcher any more of this uh, <laughs> that was very good by the way <laughs> all right thank you uh, but um so I, for, as I can't. Uh, I I know. I I joke that I, I can never write a lyric to save my life. Yeah. But as so as for you, how how I guess how tough is it to? I don't know. I mean, emotionally tough is it to write? You know, you, you could always you could always think it. You always know it. You always know that the situ the, what you're saying is truth, right? But when you put it to the to pen the pad, right, it becomes more real. Yeah. I mean, how 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 do you? I guess how do you combat your emotions when you're when you're writing something like this? I try not to, you know, I mean, I think the whole purpose really, in my experience, the best songs come when you're able to just open the door, you know, and, and let the song write itself, you know, and I, I, I know I'm not doing my job as well as I could be if I'm getting in the way of that, you know, and I'm not saying I don't edit, but I try not, I try not to edit the feeling. You know, um, I try not to guide the feeling too much. And, you know, to be honest, you know, this song was with Cutso, with Cutso. This song was 
conceived, written, produced, recorded, mixed, video shot, uploaded, donation campaign launched, uh, you know, $5,000 raised in 10 days flat, you know? And I mean, and I say all that to say, unfortunately, songs like this are really easy to write. Mm. They're really easy to write. And unfortunately, why? I don't have to dig deep. You know, it's like I said, I mean, this is something that, I've lived with my entire life. You know, I'm very acquainted with these feelings. I'm very acquainted with this experience and these sentiments, you know, because, you know, when you grow up, like, you know, as, as an Asian American, as a person of color, you, as much as you try to bury it, it's there, you know? And, um, you know, it's just something that um, I'm 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 very familiar with. You know, so it's not it's it's not like I have. There's a sadly, there's a wealth of material. Here. <laughs> you know, if that if that makes sense, you know what I mean. And um, you know, I knew it was going to be heavy, but the situation was heavy. You know. And it was more important to me that it was on the table and how it's received. Hey, you know, I don't have control over just like any other song that I write in that regard. I don't have control over how it's received. You know, I just have to make sure that the intention is pure and that I'm speaking my truth and that you can't say you weren't told. Um, you know, I saw Murs recently, uh, he dropped a, a verse on a track produced by a Cato, uh, calling for the end of Asian hate as, you know, as well. What has the response been from, from the, from the hip hop community to, to your track, but also a call against, uh, Asian hate? Oh, it's been crazy. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's about as close to going viral as you can go without going viral. Because of, mm. because the algorithms have changed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it, it's about as close to going viral. I mean, I just I mean, you know, I'm sitting here speaking to you. Right. Which is I mean, this is the most probably I've ever talked in an interview, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, I mean, the response has been everything from NBC News to NPR to Sirius XM to, you know, the local paper to blogs to i mean it's nuts it's nuts and i think it's because you cannot unsee these images now you know and the 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 truth is i could have made this song cutso and i could have made this song 10 years ago and it would have been just as relevant within our within our community it would have been just as relevant but now it's like, unfortunately, the world is doing its marketing for us. You know, you see all these images that substantiate what we're talking about, that corroborate what we're talking about. You know, we're, we've all heard the ex-president say those words, you know. 
you, you see the images caught on tape of the people being assaulted and, um, you know, it's inescapable. You know, like a couple friends of mine, some friend, a friend of a really good friend of mine, my old college roommate, he called me up. He's like, Hey, man, when did all this anti Asian violence start? You know, and I was like, 200 years ago. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, and he was like, Oh, and as soon as I said that, he knew exactly what I meant. He meant what it meant was it's been going on for a long time. It's only now that it's in the public consciousness in such an obvious way, you know? And, um, you know, I think that if I were to go tomorrow, you, you know, I had these feelings from time to time where, you know, I used to, I, I, there was a point in my career when I was touring so much, you know, I was on the road most of every year, you know, and I was on literally a flight. I think I counted one time. I was on a flight a day for 30 days straight, you know? Holy wow. And, um, I started to develop a fear of flying. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm flying this much. My odds are not good. You know what I mean? Right. You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. so I'm up in the air and I'm just like, God, please let me make it through this flight. I have one more album to make. I have one more album to make. Please let me just finish this album. You know, I, you know, I just remember feeling that way. And, um, you know, at this point I've got 15 albums done. I've got a catalog of 25 titles, you know, but I have this song. I have this song and, you know, this is the song that, you know, I want my son to be able to point to this song and be like, my dad was a real one. You know, mm. he said it. He fucking said it. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, he made some great albums. Yeah. You know, he won some awards. Yeah. He made a little money. You know what I mean? But, he said it. He fucking said it. You know what I mean? And and that to me is incredibly important. You know, because once you once once I've said it, I can't unsay it. And once you hear it, you can't unhear it. You know what I mean? Right. If your if your if your if your son hears a song and then says to you or asks you, uh, Dad, what is what do you think the your most powerful line or powerful verse on the song is which one would you point to you know um he's not really i don't think he's really old enough to sort of comprehend all the nuance you know what i mean right right but but um that's a great question man um i'd, I'd have to think you know i you stumped me i don't have an answer I, um <laughs> I think overall, like I said, I mean, I think the fact that it was made, you know, I think the fact that it was made, um, but you know, he and I, we have conversations about this kind of stuff all the time, you know, and that, that's what I think is beautiful is because I did not have these conversations with my parents growing up, you know what I mean? And we have these kind of conversations all the time. Like he'll, we'll watch things in the news and, you know, we'll have to, not not often because he's just not old enough, like I said, to sort of comprehend nuance and so forth. But you know, we do have very critical conversations about things that we observe or see, you know, or because I, I, I want him to be able to grow up to um to to be able to think critically about these things, you know. 
and and to develop his own perspective and sort of have a have a broader sense of of himself, you, you know, and 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 where he and how and where he exists in the world. You know what I mean? And um and uh, you know how how we show up in the world is entirely based on our experience, you know, and, and how we feel about ourselves, you know. And um you know, I keep all these posters and, and records and you know, memorabilia from my career and never they're all around the house and his mother, you know, all her stuff, it's all around everywhere to to because you're not gonna see these images of people that look like you and last names that end in vowels. You're not going to see these images out in the world, you know? So it's important that when you're at home, you feel reinforced, uh, and emboldened and, um, and you, you see what your possibilities are in life, you know? And, um, you know, all, like I said, all those things are very important, you know? And, and again, this, this is, you know, my, my challenges are different than, than that of my peers. You know, my my challenges are different than that of my peers, and that's something that I've had to embrace. You know, and that I I do embrace. You know, and um, uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for the fucking world, man. I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Chris Hahn, the Aggressive Progressive. Check out a new episode of the Aggressive Progressive podcast every Tuesday. You know, the election is heating up just as the year is winding down. Stick with me. I'll tell you the truth as I see it. Download the Aggressive Progressive on Pandora or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this is uh, this is my last question, and I have no idea how to make this a smooth transition at all. <laughs> Because uh, from what we're talking about to what I'm about to ask yeah. you, so I figure I'll just go for it. Uh, I was watching a, a few of your live performances, and I think what 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 has always stood out to me is that, and I think I mentioned earlier that you are having fun. You know, yeah. like even with the heavy stuff, it's quote unquote heavy stuff. It's just fun, and you're enjoying what you're doing. And then I have never seen you live, but then watching your performances, you really come off as like kind of a big band leader type thing, you know, not just like an MC, but someone who, you know, it's like years ago, early 2000s, I got to see BB King, uh, in concert and, and, and I don't remember who opened for him, but of course, like, you know, it's a guy you don't remember, but of course he's like in the hall of fame somewhere. Um, and he was by himself and the, it was, you know, it was like, I was visiting, it was at Cornell. So the sound guy was probably a college kid. Uh, and in front of the, in front of us, this amazing vocalist was doing sound check for the kid, like correctly uh-huh. to make sure he sounded correctly. Cause he just know, you know, he, he knows his voice and knows how actually how these, this equipment works. Yeah. So I kind of, to me, that's kind of how you are. Um, how, how did you, how did you develop 
this not being just an MC, but more than an MC, you know, like a band leader and, uh, you know, all, all, well, I guess a well-rounded artist. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for noticing that. Um, I, it, um, I, I developed in, into more because I wanted to be more than, than just an MC, you know, um, to me, you know, when I was coming up in the nineties, it's like you said, I mean, you know, when we talked about early in the conversation, you know, finding your voice literally and figuratively, you know, I'm thinking of myself and I, I continue to always think to myself, where, where are my strengths? Where do I stand out? You know, what can I offer that hasn't been done yet? You know, or, you know, and generally whenever I try to make a new album or whenever I go out and rehearse a, new, a show for a new tour you know, I take a look back at the, you know, I kind of take a look back and I, I, I take a step back and I try to like sort of survey the landscape, you know what I mean? And I see what people aren't doing or what I haven't done yet or where I can improve. And I, and I try to insert myself there. Does that make sense? So, you know, so the band was something that I just noticed nobody else was really doing you know except for maybe the roots at that time and the black eyed peas of course and you know you know there were some other artists back then that, that were that were doing it but it was it was rare you know and i see why i mean it's a real undertaking you know what i mean yeah but it is it has led in my opinion to so much growth for me as an artist and as a person because I have such a broader understanding of music now and performance and um, just my vocabulary, you know, in every sense of the word has, it, it is so deep now in terms of being a, a consummate artist, which is always what I wanted to be, you know, and as a producer, like in the early days when it was me, Shadow and, Chief XL, you know, making beats. I mean, it was us alone in a room with a cubicle and a big stack of records and a sampler. And that was pretty much it. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, I made later that day that way. And I made the same shit different day that way. But after a while, I started to feel like that medium was kind of limited, you know, and I, I didn't really feel like I could consider myself a great artist or a great producer unless I was well-versed in these other mediums as well. You know, like, and that's when I decided, you know, I want to branch out. I want to work with real musicians in the studio. I want to work with other people. I don't want to just be a guy alone in a cubicle or an office space with a typewriter. You know what I mean? It was like I, I want, I had to, I, I didn't really feel like I could consider myself. I, I wasn't reaching my true potential if I wasn't branching out. You know what I mean? And, um, and so that, that's kind of where that came from, you know, and I saw a lot of the early dance hall artists like Shabba Ranks and Ninja Man and, you know, who were heroes of mine. They all had bands, you know, right. and um, even though the music was very electronic and very, you know, it was kind of, quote unquote, in the box style production, as we call it now, you know what I mean? When you see them perform live, they had a band and what they were doing was really, they had a lot of um, flexibility and a lot of versatility as artists because they had this, this, this medium that allowed them to do certain things, you know, and, and, um, I, you know, of course my heroes also are like James Brown and Curtis Mayfield and, you know, these guys that fronted these bands and. I wanted to bring that. I wanted to bring, I wanted to contribute that to the album. 
too. So, um, lyrics born, uh, new, new, new record out with DJ Cutso, uh, Anti, uh, definitely must listen. Uh, lyrics born, thank you so much for being on Library Rap the Hip Hop interviews with Tim and Nicole. I know it was a long interview, but thank you so much, man. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I appreciate it, Tim. Thank you. I feel highly disrespected. Herd immunity ain't serving the community. No more herd in our community with certain impunity. We've been targeted as a source where this started. It's our turn to spin on the wheel of misfortune. Those in authority blame the model minority and tell their supporters we the reason for quarantine. A strategy as old as America itself. Let them fight each other. Let them bury themselves. Anti-slander. Guess who's the bad guy? I ain't playing. Anti-slander. Guess who's the bad guy? 